0: We're in the fourth week of a series called The Art of Life, and we've spent the last three weeks talking about different ways that we can engage in kingdom living. The first week, Nick came and talked about the balance of faith and work, uh, reminded us that the work that we do is good, whether that's at home or in the business world or in a nonprofit, that God gives us work. Um, because it helps advance his kingdom in the places that he puts us. And that oftentimes he strategically places us in that place of work. On the second week, Nick came back and talked about the Sabbath. He reminded us that that is the biggest commandment that we break consistently and challenged us to find ways to engage in rest on a regular basis. And then last week, Larry came and he talked about friendship. And he reminded us that Friendship was made um, in the image of God that we need each other that we need community And he challenged us to make sure that we engage in friendships in our lives This morning we're going to address the topic of resiliency And resiliency is the idea of facing hardship and pain in our lives And then integrating that hardship and pain into our kingdom living So that we can continue to show the light and love of Christ to the world But as we saw in the video clip, oftentimes all of us face times of hardship, of pain, of discouragement, times that we're facing the reality of our own death or the reality of someone else's that we care about. And so how do we even begin to think about how to proceed when life gets hard? How is that part of our kingdom living? So we want to talk about that a little bit this morning and I want to walk you through three things around resiliency. The first thing we're going to do is define it. Uh, There's a lot of research out there on resiliency right now. It's really popular in the medical world um, with veterans and also um, in the psychology arena. And so we're going to define it a little bit. Um, Then we're going to talk about where we see it in the Bible. And then finally, the third movement, we're going to give you some ideas on how you can actually practice being more resilient. So let's start out with defining resiliency. Um, The dictionary definition from Webster Merriam Dictionary says this about resiliency. It's the capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation, especially if the strain is caused by compressive stresses called also elastic resilience. This definition leaves us with the image of a rubber band. And when you think of about a rubber band that's been stretched and stretched and stretched, the assumption from this definition is when you let the rubber band go, it comes back and it's in the exact same shape it was before it started. I actually think this is a really limited view of resiliency. I'm wondering how many people in the audience have ever had a hard time? Yeah. And when you were stretched during that hard time, did you go back to the way you were after you went through the hardship? We don't. We're not the same when we, when after that happens. Whenever we step into a place where we're facing really difficult challenges, we're, we're changed. We're never the same. There's a great book out there called Resilience, Hard-Won Wisdom for Living a Better Life by Eric Grittens. It is a fantastic book. It is not a Christian book, but it's written by an ex-Navy SEAL who walked through hardship not only on the field, but also when he came home. And he became somebody that other people that were walking through hardship really respected and went to for advice. And so there was another gentleman, um, a fellow Navy SEAL, that came home, and he was really imploding. He was getting into drug and alcohol abuse. He was very angry. He was not living into the fullness of his life. And so he began to reach out to the author, Eric Grittens. And Eric ended up writing him a series of letters, and that's what he compiled in this book. And he brought in information and ideas and resources from all different places and I really like what he has to say about resilience. He expands that definition a bit and he says this, if we limit our understanding of resilience to this idea of bouncing back, we miss much of what hardship, pain and suffering offer us. We also misunderstand our basic human capacity to change and improve. Life's reality is that we cannot bounce back. We cannot bounce back because we cannot go back in time to the people we used to be. The parent who loses a child never bounces back. The 19-year-old Marine who sails for war is gone forever, even if he returns. What's done cannot be undone, and some of what life does to us is harsh. Fortunately, to be resilient, we don't need to go back in time. What happens to us becomes part of us resilient people do not bounce back from hard experiences. They find healthy ways to integrate them into their lives. In time, people find that great calamity met with great spirit can create great strength. This definition gives me more of an image of a buoy. And I'm intentionally giving you a variety of snapshots of the word resiliency. Because I love how Jesus in the New Testament often tells a grand story, but he tells it in three or four different ways. And I think he does that because it helps us. um, He brings in different audiences. We all have different learning styles. We're all going to resonate with different things. And so this morning, you're going to get a bunch of snapshots. So you saw the the rubber band example. Now I'm going to tell you why I think resiliency is more like a sea buoy. Um, every year, or every few years, we have the chance to go out to the coast of Maine. David's mom and stepdad live um, on a house on an island off the coast. And to get there, we have to take a ferry. And most of the time when we go, the fog is so, so thick that you can't see anything. And the only thing that keeps the, um, the ship on track are these giant buoys. And the buoys stay in place because they're anchored to the bottom of the ocean, so it doesn't matter if the storms come, if the waves come, how many years those buoys have been there, as long as they're anchored to the bottom, they stay put and they guide the way for others. That's what resiliency is. That's, it's being the buoy that is grounded to something bigger than ourselves so that when the waves knock us around, we're able to still continue on. It's not only a buoy, but I also think resiliency is the image of a boxer. A bunch of the reading I went through talked about rolling with the punches, and at first when I read that I was like, oh, I hate that definition of resiliency, because I had the image of like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you could do it and keep moving on, and that's not real when hardship hits. But then I did some reading on that definition of roll with the punches, and it's actually the idea of moving your body so that when the punch comes, because it's going to come, you angle your body so that it lessens the impact that's resiliency. We are gonna get knocked around, we're gonna get our heads (laughs) bashed, and if we can learn how to move our bodies and angle it so that the impact is lesser, that will help us to live a more resilient life. The Mayo Clinic says this, resilience is the ability to roll with the punches. When stress, adversity, or trauma strikes, you still experience anger, grief, and pain But, you're able to keep functioning, both physically and psychologically. However, resilience isn't about toughing it out, being stoic or going it alone. In fact, being able to reach out to others for support is a key component of being resilient. We all face hardships in life. We all face our mortality. We all get tossed around in the waves and hit in the face but none of us can escape the fact that we're gonna have to deal with that hardship. And so the question is, what are we gonna do when those hardships come? Ernest Hemingway says this, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong in the broken places. Are you gonna be strong in the broken places when hardship and suffering comes? Are you gonna be a person who stays broken, or are you gonna tap into your resiliency? I've shown you a couple of images and examples of resiliency from kind of our culture and our time but there's also a ton of great examples in the bible in fact i would argue that the bible is full of stories of resiliency we see over and over again heroes and heroines that face hardship and trials and struggles and persecution and death and they're knocked down and they get back up again and they're knocked down and they get back up again and they do that because they're grounded in their faith that there's something bigger than them and that that's god and the hope of his return and his restoration and so this morning i want to look at one passage that i really like when it comes to resiliency and the resiliency is not a, a word that you're going to find in the bible um perseverance would be one that is closer pretty close to resiliency but the passage i want to look at today is hebrews 12:1 through 3. look at this with me it says this therefore so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm gonna give you some historical background so you understand kind of what um, imagery this art, the author of Hebrews, is giving us. And the first thing that I wanna tell you about is uh, the first century runner. So the first century runner um, wore as little clothing as possible because. He knew, or she knew, well, he in this case, knew that the less they had on, the faster that they would run. So they would enter into these arenas with these robes on, and then they would take the robes off, and they'd run in, you know, really short shorts or nothing at all. We see this today sometimes. I heard that there was a runner uh, from Colorado that was visiting Chicago, and he knew that if he (laughs) took his shirt off, he'd be able to run faster in the winter rain. So it still happens today, but... That was the reason for um, the runners. They, you know, they needed to take everything off. And you'll see in a little bit um, how that applies to us. It talks about taking off the things that hinder us. The other thing that I want to talk to you a little bit about is is I want you to have an image of the first century stadium. So the first century stadium looks similar to this. Um, It was a track in the middle and then seats around and the seats sat thousands and thousands of people. And the track, um, if you can see kind of midway through, there's a black spot. Somebody of great importance would sit there. So maybe the pioneer of Rome that may have been the ruler or um, the head officiant of that region. And whenever the runners would run past that person, they would maybe pick up their pace a little bit faster because whenever you run in front of somebody important, you feel like you've got to put on your best show. So that was kind of what was there. Now you can see the pillars at one end of the track. Those those are stone pillars. And then there's another set of pillars at the far end. And so one end is where the race would start. And then the other end is where the race would end. In the stands sat what's called the cloud of witnesses. These were the um, watchers of the race. And they were very active watchers. They were almost participants in the race themselves. They weren't actually running But they were cheering the racers on, and they knew that the louder they cheered, the faster the runners ran. And so it was important for them to continue to cheer and yell and holler and encourage. When the runners got tired or the runners started to trip, the people in the stands would say, go, keep going, we believe in you. The last thing I want to talk about, we mentioned a little bit the, the finish line, and the that was the one thing that those runners would focus on so they would get to their starting point they would look at the important person that was sitting over on the side and then all they focused on was the end and so they would run as fast as they could so that they could get to the end they'd push through the pain and they'd finally get to the other side completely exhausted the reason it's important to have that context is that that scene um, is actually a metaphor for what the Hebrews author is talking about in this passage. And so I want to go back now and explain, re-explain it to you, and I want you to realize that you're the person that's the runner in the story. So first thing that I want you to know is that the author of Hebrews calls us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. So we're the runners in the race, but we need to get rid of all the extra junk that we're holding on to so that we can race our faith as as best as we can. So some of the things that we may be holding on to are some of the negative messages that we get into our heads, that we're not good enough, that we're not um, enough, we're not enough, we're not enough. We all have, we all get those. We need to throw those off it may be that we've got these messages of isolation that we're not around anybody else and so nobody nobody loves us and nobody wants to be near us Um, it may be that we're stuck in a place of sin we're struggling with pornography or temptation or addiction or um, whatever the things in our life are all of that junk that goes on inside of our heads and our hearts in order to run the the good race of faith we need to get rid of all of that junk So that's the first thing that this passage talks about. The second thing, um, when it's talking about the cloud of witnesses, the passage says we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And what I love about this is if you go back to Hebrews 11, you realize that um, the cloud of witnesses are all of these great heroes and heroines that we talked about earlier. So it talks about Noah, it talks about Moses, it talks about Rahab, it talks about so many others. And these aren't people that had it all together. Like, we always read these Bible stories and we're like, Moses was fantastic or Noah was great. And we forget that Noah was also a drunkard. These are messed up, normal people that chose to get into the race of life, run as fast as they could toward the finish line, knowing that what they were running towards was a hope that God laid out before them. In fact, Hebrews 11:1 1 through 2 says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. These people somehow knew to focus on the hope and to continue to run through the hardships of life even when they were getting knocked over because they believed that there was something bigger than themselves at the end of the story that kept them motivated. Well, these are the ones that are sitting in the stands as we're running the race of faith. And what they're doing is they're saying, we have run this race before you. We know it's hard. We know you're tired. We know that you've been persecuted or you've been hurt or you're struggling, but you can do this. We did it. We saw the hope. We want to remind you of the hope that's there. The third thing that we see, um, if we think about the honored guest, again, going back to our passage, it says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. In our race, it's not that there's an important ruler that's sitting at the side of the racetrack. It's that it's the God of the universe that's sitting at the side of the racetrack. And he's not a passive observer observer of our race. He's the forerunner of the race. He ran the race before us. He's already done all of it. He's lived his own hardship. He's there to say, I I was human like you. I know what this pain is. Is like and I want to cheer you on to get to the end and then there's the finish line Jesus ran the race with his eyes on the finish line and he calls us to do the same and I think this part of our passage is the one that's the most powerful Jesus persevered hardship and pain for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God Jesus knew that despite the fact that he was beaten, that he was scorned, that he was isolated, that he was forgotten, that he was crucified, he knew that all of those things were small in comparison to what the hope that he had in being with the Father and at the right hand of God. And he says to us, that same hope applies to you. I know that you're having hardship and pain and grief and suffering, but it's not the end of the story. The best part is still coming. Jesus knows our pain and disappointment because he lived our pain and disappointment. And it says this in the passage: consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, heart. This is the hope of the Bible. This is the gospel, that Jesus came, lived died rose again is coming back again and that he offers us to follow in his path because the full restoration of his kingdom has started to come but will come back in its fullness in the future so when we're facing that hardship and those challenges and the grief we've got something else to look forward to so the question becomes how do we get this kind of resiliency Is it a nature thing or a nurture thing? And it's a little bit of both. There are some people that seem to just be born with some level of resiliency. But it's also something that we can actively involve ourselves in. Now, don't get me wrong. When we think about that buoy illustration, we have to be anchored to the sea. And that has to be the hope of Jesus. But then we've got an active role as well. There are specific things that we can do in that relationship with Jesus to foster that level of resiliency, and I want to talk about a couple of those. But first, I want to say this. I was thinking about um, my own hardship, and the hardest part in my life was when our son Aiden died 19 years ago. And I still get choked up. It doesn't go away. And as I was thinking back on my own darkest time, what I realized was that I, had, I wasn't really thinking about being resilient or even trying to get better at anything. I was trying to survive one moment to the next moment to the next moment to the next moment. And I say that to you because I know there's people in here who have lost a spouse or a child, who are in the middle of a divorce, whose businesses are falling apart, And to hear these ways to work on resiliency may sound really empty. And I want you to know that when you're in the middle of the tsunami of life, the best thing you can do is hold on to to Jesus and know that the rest will come. And there are things that I reflected back on that time of my life that were really helpful in making sure that I could stay connected to Jesus. And so I want to share three of those with you. The first is this, engage in relationships. For some reason, we tend to isolate ourselves when life gets hard instead of engaging ourselves when life gets hard. And relationships are hugely important. That's what Larry talked about last week. We were made to be in relationship with one another. God is a trinity for a reason. And so when we... We take time when we're not in the waves to develop those relationships. Then when the waves come, that base work is even, even heavier. It's even um, fuller. And so what are you doing to work on the relationships in your life? You know, we, none of us have perfect families or perfect friendships. But how can you foster those relationships so that you've got the best relationship that you can have? How can you be spending time with family? How can you be reaching out with friends? A huge part of this is being involved in a church community. Being a part of a church isn't just to mark it off of your to-do list every week because you know, you'll feel guilty if you don't. God calls us into community so that we can hold each other up when life gets hard and celebrate when life is good. And so what are you doing to get to make sure that you're involved in the life of the church? come on Sunday mornings. Part of the value of listening to sermons week in and week out is that we create our own images of God, and when we come back to church and we're in community with other people, our skewed image becomes a more realistic image. Or join a small group. I know it is intimidating to join a small group. We intentionally set those up so that they're short six to eight week periods of time. You know what? If you can show up in that, don't expect that you're going to have these deep relationships with people. Show up and develop a couple surfacey friendships, and then deep relationships will naturally develop. Or get involved in our men's or women's ministry. Get to hang out with a women's ministry team um, on Friday night. There are some awesome things happening in women's ministry, and if you're not involved in that yet, we'd like to encourage you to do so. It doesn't matter if you like to hike or sew or cook or read. There's a place of community in our women's ministry. And men's ministry as well. Go shoulder to shoulder with a guy and do some golf or be involved in a Bible study, but find that level of community. It's really, really important. We actually have volunteers out at that info table every week. And if you've been at Waterstone for a while, you probably walk right by But did you know that is a huge resource that all of us can tap into? That team has a ton of information and ways to get you involved. So take the time to do that. Take a class. Do something to engage in relationship. It will build your resiliency. Second thing is to find meaning in life. And the number one way to find meaning in life is to make sure that your buoy is anchored to Christ. That's the number one way to do it. Because if we're not... If we're not attached to Christ, then everything else becomes irrelevant. There's some other things, once that's happened, that we can do that increase that, um, that sense of finding meaning. Again, going back to Nick's sermon a couple weeks ago, there's, you can find meaning in your work. God has strategically placed you in your workplace. Even if you don't like your job right now, what, what meaning can you find in the place you're in at this point in time? or get involved in a ministry, either inside Waterstone or outside the church walls. Go volunteer at Nightlights, or go downtown to Open Door Ministries and volunteer. I guarantee you that when you are in a hard time and you go and serve someone else, it actually gives you freedom and a break from your grief because it has you focus on somebody else. That was one of the best things for me in the middle of um, struggling with Aiden, was going and serving other people. It didn't make the pain go away it just made me realize that God was still at work in the world even though my world had stopped volunteer in your kids or grandkids school that is huge or help coach their team sometimes I think we forget how important that is but that's a way of service that is a huge way to give back and to find bigger purpose or Serve in our kids' ministry or with our student ministry. Did you know that our student ministries, that those students look for, they um, connect them with mentors every year? There are young people dying to get to know somebody that's a step ahead of them and teach them about Christ, and that could be you. So do something. Do something that helps you find meaning in your life. The third thing, and I think this is really important and we don't ever talk about it, and it has to do with our mental state. And it's about reframing our thinking. A friend of mine was telling me about an article she read or a podcast she heard and said, you know, for some reason when our kids are little, we're really, really good at training them to take care of their bodies. We teach them to brush their teeth. We teach them to comb their hair. We teach them to shower. But how many of us have taught our kids how to boundary the thoughts that go through their heads? And we all know this as adults, that it messes with us. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not. Or you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. And the best way to offset that is to be in relationship with other people that can say, hey, that's not from God. That's not, that's not biblical thinking. Not in a judgmental way, just in a, hey, your head is messing with you right now. Let's help steer you back on course. That's another reason to be in relationship. Sometimes it. We need, we need um, somebody that's got more expertise in helping us reframe our thinking. We have an incredible resource of counselors that we send people to all the time. If you need help reframing some of those negative thoughts, let us help you find one of those counselors. I'm telling you, counseling is the best thing I've done in my life. started when I was 19 and still go today. Not every week, but you know. It's, really, it's a good practice. Sometimes we, get a na- we create this negative impression in our minds about going to see somebody that can help us. Counselors are amazing. They'll help you figure out how to reframe some of your thinking. We also have resources here at Waterstone. Get connected with a Stephen minister. We've got incredible men and women of God who are willing to come and walk through hardship. That's what they do. They show up when things get hard, and they sit with you in your grief, And then if your thinking starts to get off, you've got somebody there that can kind of help steer you back on track. So those three things will help us become more resilient. Engage in relationships, find meaning in life, reframe our thinking. But again, all of those have to be in the context of being anchored to a relationship with Christ. So we can take all... We can take steps to resiliency. Like I said, yes, some people are naturally born with higher levels than others, but we've got to take steps to make sure that we're doing our part. And to go back to a quote from Eric Gritton's book, he says this, We become what we do if we do it often enough. We act with courage, and we become courageous. We act with compassion, and we become compassionate. If we make resilient choices we become more resilient. This morning, I want to challenge you to decide what your one step towards resiliency looks like. And so we're going to have a time of reflection. The band is going to come out and play some music. um, And after a little bit of time, um, lead us in a time of worship together. But I want you to close your eyes for a minute. And I'm going to read through um, some prayers that may apply to you. And I'm going to have you first imagine that picture of that sea buoy. Maybe you're here today and you know your buoy isn't grounded to anything. You're floating along in life just waiting for the next wave to hit. Jesus is the loving Father who wants you to hold on to him. All you need to do is ask maybe you're grounded in a relationship with jesus but your buoy broke loose in the tsunami of life your child died your spouse died your spouse left your business tanked your temptations got the best of you cry out to jesus and let him hold you as you bob in the water Maybe your buoy is grounded to the ocean floor and the waves are calm. Make sure you're checking on the rope that connects you to Jesus. Are you developing strong relationships with others? Are you engaged in activities that bring kingdom meaning to your life? Are you attending church, reading your Bible, and allowing others to speak into your life to help you keep your thinking in the right frame? Take time to reflect quietly in your seat. And as the music starts, if you want to take the risk and come forward, we'd love to invite you to kneel in front of the cross. We'll also have prayer ministers, elders, and staff up front if you want to pray pray with someone. Sometimes the pain of suffering loses some of its power when we speak it out loud. Wherever you are this morning, come to Jesus just as you are. He wants you to look to him at the end of the finish line, call out his name, and trust that the day is coming where he will restore all of creation back to the way it was intended to be.